Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today's podcast was recorded during the 35th Critical Care Congress in San Francisco, California. It is released today in conjunction with the upcoming conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, to be held September 21st through the 23rd, 2006, in Baltimore, Maryland. In today's podcast, we will be speaking with Brian Jacobs, M.D., Dr. Jacobs is a pediatric intensivist at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. His other titles include Director of Technology and Patient Safety and Director of the Integrating Clinical Information Systems, or ISIS, project. From an academic standpoint, he is a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Dr. Jacobs spoke at Congress on several topics, including computerized physician order entry and error detection a topic that he is well-versed on after being actively involved in the implementation of an electronic health record at a tertiary care children's hospital. The ISIS system is a fully integrated hospital-wide computer system that includes a web-based portal, computerized physician order entry, nursing documentation, an electronic medication administration record, as well as robust clinical decision support and electronic resources. The system has been responsible for reduction in medication errors, improved efficiency, enhanced regulatory compliance, and widespread user satisfaction. He is with us today to discuss how his efforts relate to patient safety and his thoughts on the future of the electronic health record. Thanks so much, Brian, for being with us today. Thank you, Richard. Why don't we let you talk a little bit about the, uh, some of the problems, historical safety problems at Cincinnati Children's prior to your implementation. So the term is not electronic medical record anymore. It's electronic health record. Well, we use the term electronic health record to encompass the entire integrating clinical information system. And uh, we use the term ISIS as an uh, acronym for that. The electronic health record as it stands today in Cincinnati Children's includes CPOE, and the electronic documentation and the medication administration record, uh, similar to what you described in your introductory statements. And I've had the opportunity to work at Cincinnati Children's now for almost 12 years and see the development of the electronic health record and the changes in, in medication safety and uh, error reduction as a result of the electronic health record. So let me take you back to the way things were five to ten years ago in terms of uh, the safety issues at Cincinnati Children's. First of all, I think one of the biggest problems that we had at Cincinnati Children's in the past was illegible, ambiguous orders. It was very unusual to have a complete, unambiguous medication or other medical care order in Cincinnati Children's prior to the implementation of CPOE. 
And as I think many are familiar with, it's not unusual to have eligibility in terms of the drug name, the dose, the route, the frequency, or even simple things such as who wrote the order or how do you get a hold of that individual there. Similarly, uh, clinical decision support was rather haphazard. A typical resident in the year 2000 who was ordering gentamicin, for example, would have to recall the patient's weight, the dose of gentamicin, what the last gentamicin level was, renal function, uh, and other uh, uh, issues um, around the use of, uh, appropriate use of the, uh, the drug gentamicin and other issues around the appropriate use of the drug gentamicin. A lot of times this relied on uh, resources that were not readily accessible or they may have been old or simply asking your partner for information about gentamicin dosing which may not have been accurate. Another problem that we experience routinely in Cincinnati Children's is the inefficient turnaround time for very important services. Medication turnaround time from the time of an order to the time of a medication arriving at the bedside historically was a little over 112 minutes. Um, X-ray turnaround time, if I were to intubate a patient or place a central venous catheter, uh, even though we have a PAC system in our hospital, it wasn't unusual to wait uh, a good 10 to 15 minutes for a technician to come up and take the X-ray and another uh, 30 minutes for the image to be available on PACs. I think another problem that we had in Cincinnati Children's in the uh, years preceding CPOE were a lack of understanding of the way we delivered care and the variance around the way we delivered care. For example, we didn't really know when medication orders were peaking throughout the day, and it was difficult to adjust staffing in the pharmacy to meet the needs uh, for appropriate medication dispensing uh, to meet the uh, needs of the patient on time. I was going to ask you one quick question uh, just to, to interject there is, is uh, focusing on implementation. I was involved in Cornell's implementation of their electronic health record back in 1997, mm -hmm. and I remember that um, learning a lot about informatics then, and uh, what the physicians want is speed, speed, speed. It needs to be fast, and I was wondering if you could, I mean, we could talk all day about implementation, um, and that the ideal of using a computer to improve safety is a great one, but there are many, many challenges. That's an excellent question. I uh, think that one of the biggest problems with implementation is preparing your culture prior to actually implementing the system. There are a lot of great uh, vendor-based systems out there that if they were to be implemented in a hospital such as Cincinnati Children's without the appropriate groundwork, they would probably fail. Uh, and there's several examples of fairly significant failures throughout the country when process was not taken into account prior to implementing CPOE. Uh, our success in implementing uh, the electronic health record at Cincinnati Children's is really multifactorial. It starts with complete buy-in at the executive level, uh, the heavy involvement of both physicians and nurses in the product design uh, and the specific requirements for that unit, whether it be a neonatal or a pediatric ICU or a cardiac ICU, and significant physician involvement in the creation of order sets and looking at the flow as it affects their patient population. I remember one of the issues that um, you know almost every hospital has to grapple with is to write it themselves or to buy it off the shelf, and then the sort of the long-term relationship that you develop with the company if you do buy it off the shelf, because each individual institution has so many um, subtleties and nuances of how they, their processes are, are performed. 
Sure. The, uh, there are many homegrown systems, including uh, Brigham and Women's and Latter-day Saints and Regan Street, who have created systems uh, with some very good people over the years that are functional in those units there. Um, they had the resources to do those. The hospital of today may not necessarily have the robust uh, analytical and programming support required to develop a system from scratch. And I think it's becoming more and more prevalent for hospital-based systems to look at some of the vendors on the marketplace to supply their electronic health record needs. Um, and I know the uh, one of the other fundamental tenets of safely implementing, implementing an electronic health record is rapidly... Uh, assessing and addressing the problems and trying to fix them early on to keep the buy-in on the part of the users, right? That's a very important point that you bring up, Richard. The um, problems will arise. Some of them are anticipated and some of them are unanticipated. And even in the best of systems, how that system fits your unique environment is going to be different for each institution. Uh, you have to have the capacity to address problems as they arise, and that can be either with a very close relationship with the supplier of the electronic health record in terms of support, or you can put the resources into your own institution to have the appropriate people to be able to recognize and address problems as they arise and correct them quickly. Problems that exist in an electronic health record that are not corrected quickly are a great source of user dissatisfaction for both physicians, nurses, and allied health professionals. Another thing I remember, both from my personal experience and from my reading, is that implementing an electronic health record can often bring out problems that were there but that nobody was sort of cognizant of because you really have to sort of formalize your process so that a computer can handle it. You must have run into some of these issues if you want to talk about that. Oh, yes. I uh, probably can spend the rest of the hour talking about unanticipated problems that arose. Uh, I'll give you an example. When you select a physician, uh, for a verbal order, if you're a nurse selecting a physician for a verbal order, you may have a half a dozen Dr. Smiths. And it's not unusual for Dr. Smith to call over the phone and give the verbal order to the nurse who then enters the order. And by the time Dr. Smith has hung up, she's not aware of who, which Dr. Smith it was and perhaps selects the wrong Dr. Smith. Uh, the resident example, uh, we had one recently where a resident uh, wanted to give Versed to a patient. He typed in the letters V-E-R and browsed those medications, and uh, the list that popped up included Verapamil, Versed, Versed, and he accidentally clicked on the Verapamil. The medication was dispensed from the pharmacy and went to the bedside, and fortunately the nurse was able to intercept it before it actually harmed the patient. So those are just two of uh, very many examples of unanticipated consequences uh, that you wouldn't necessarily predict in advance. Now, having said that, I will say that we do have 5% of the hospitals in the country now who have successfully implemented a CPOE system and are moving forward with the electronic health record. And I think it's critically important for uh, institutions that are going to implement an electronic health record to derive some lessons from those successful institutions so that they don't reinvent the wheel and make the same mistakes that have been made in the past. Including like site visits or reading publications like, like yours, etc.? Yes, I think uh, the literature is now becoming more replete with information about what successful implementation entails. 
Uh, there are a lot of societies, uh, informatics societies, who uh, publish information and guides and manuals about how to do successful implementation. And certainly there's no substitute for actually going to a successful center and sitting down and asking them and talking through what was uh, successful for them, what, what were the techniques that they used to ensure success. Well, before I before I get to some of your successes and, and how it's improved safety, I'd just like to address some of the other issues. Do you think it's gotten easier for institutions to implement electronic health systems because sort of the baseline level of technology has improved so much? Does that help things, the speed of networks, the speed of computers, the presence of wireless networks? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I do think that things are getting better all the time. And you mentioned some of the hardware issues in terms of uh, computing speed and uh, wireless infrastructure, and we have certainly seen changes there. But more importantly, I think with all of these electronic health record implementations, it's an 80-20 rule. 80% of your success is in culture change, and 20% of it is the technology there. Now, having said that, I know that a lot of the vendor-based systems are taking into account the specialty requirements for each individual institution. We have a pediatric requirement. Uh, critical care have their own requirements as well. Neonatology have their own requirements, and the perioperative area have their own requirements as well. You cannot design and build one system that fits all. The other thing that's important and that's building over time is the intellectual property within these systems that's applicable to that specific patient population. So it's not, re it's not reasonable for every cardiothoracic surgery unit around the country doing bypass surgery to have uh, separate order sets for the care, the post-op management uh, and care of a cardiothoracic surgery patient. And so uh, by vendors offering uh, starter order sets, uh, where uh, you can change a couple of little items there and apply it to your own unit. That's going to make things much more efficient and consistent and evidence-based for those units. You mentioned before the uh, a couple of times the issue of a culture change, and you said you get buy-in from the physicians and the nurses and the residents. Um, but why don't you share with the members of SCCM some of your personal stories? I mean, I'm sure you've gained tremendous experience with doing this over time. You can always find the physician that's that's fighting this, or the or the nurse that's saying it's too slow. And and how do you decide when it's someone just fighting the system or whether there's a real problem that's worth holding up the implementation or the go-live of a system. Uh, I'd love to hear your personal thoughts on those issues. Well, technology implementation is somewhat of a bell-shaped curve. On the uh, one side of the curve, you have early adopters. On the other side of the curve, you have those who say, I'm never going to adopt this technology. And then you have the vast bulk of people in the middle who sort of want to see how it goes and will jump on the bandwagon when it looks like it's going to work for them. Uh, it's very, very important to engage those early adopters and perhaps even use them as sentinels for spreading the word about the advantages of these systems. So champions. Champions are, are, are really important there, and um, not just an institutional champion, but even a departmental or divisional level specific champion, a physician champion and a nurse champion. Uh, in our own critical care unit, I represented the champion for that particular unit, but when we went into neonatology, an area that I'm not that familiar with, we had to develop our own set of physician and nurse champions there to sort of uh, spread the cause. The uh, physicians, for the most part, are a, a bit wary of CPOE. They have um, heard some um, some stories in the uh, in the press as well as in the literature of failures. 
Uh, I think some of them are worried about their own technological skills and the ability to just jump on the bandwagon. They're comfortable in the way they do their work. And uh, the introduction of a large technology like this is going to change the way they work. And I think because of those reasons, physicians tend to be a bit uneasy in early adoption. So when you're trying to sell a system like this to a new institution, I think it's very important to engage the physicians early, meeting with them early and often. And also, once you've implemented a system in, say, one of the units in the hospital and it's been successful, it's critical that you then take those success stories and feed them back to the rest of the population to show them such things as legibility, uh, error reduction, efficiency, regulatory compliance, and so forth. Uh, well, that segues very nicely into the, the next important focus of the interview, which is to have you share uh, with us some of your success stories in being able to uh, improve patient safety through the electronic health record implementation. Yes, I think I would probably break down our gains from the implementation in the electronic health record into a few areas, patient safety, clinician efficiency, patient care efficiency, regulatory compliance, and user satisfaction. And I'd like to just touch on each of those areas if I could. Uh, in terms of patient safety, we uh, have seen since the implementation of the electronic health record in 2002 some dramatic improvements in several areas. First of all, with the implementation of the system, right off the bat you get legible, complete, unambiguous orders. Those orders that you couldn't read in the past now are complete, uh, with dose route frequency and duration. They have the physician name, the physician contact number, and even a time on the order, which was absent in the, the vast majority of cases in the past. So that complete legible unambiguous order is an immediate gain that you see. We've also improved our medication turnaround time. So what used to take 112 minutes from the time of the order to the medication arriving at the bedside is now arriving in 57 minutes. And that is a significant drop of almost one hour for a medication that may be uh, essential for the um, treatment of any particular disease or diagnosis. Efficiency, I had mentioned um, the problems with turnaround time for x-rays, uh, also with respiratory therapy and obtaining an EKG in a STAT situation. We've been able to utilize the electronic health record to route orders that are placed on wireless devices directly to the pager that's held by the technician in one of those services so that they can carry out an x-ray and provide the image for you to view on PACS in a much, uh, much more uh, improved time. Uh, and that, uh, that's also true for respiratory therapy treatments as well as for EKG. JCO and regulatory compliance with, with JCO and the, your own policies and procedures are always a big issue and certainly topical uh, in this day and age. And the electronic health records helps you to comply with those things, such as pain assessment and reassessment. Uh, and verbal orders and monitoring your verbal order problem. We had a significant um, problem with verbal orders at Cincinnati Children's. 22% of our orders were verbal and 44% of them were permanently unsigned prior to CPOE. With CPOE and the electronic health record implementation, we've now been able to bring our verbal order rate down to about 9%, wow. and the unsigned verbal order rate has dropped also to less than 10%, and that's through a combination of electronic health record plus some process improvement methods using derived information from the electronic health record. Yeah, we went through that at our hospital, and again, like you said, because the... Uh 
if it's done right, the the presence of the electronic health record in a fairly ubiquitous fashion allows there to really not be as much of a need for verbal orders as there used to be with the paper record. Yes, and I would like to touch a little bit as well on clinician efficiency. Certainly that's one of the big um, rationales given as to why physician adoption is so difficult with, with the electronic health record because a physician inherently does not want to become more uh, inefficient. Now, uh, it's true that if you were to admit, say, an asthmatic patient and enter 30 items for that patient into the electronic health record for their care, that would be a slow, cumbersome, and inefficient process. And this is where order sets come into play. Uh, the big efficiency for physicians when caring for patients and ordering care uh, in the electronic health record are extensive evidence-based order sets uh, for the care of any particular disease diagnosis or procedure, and that's really your efficiency builder there. But even having said that, to ask an orthopedic surgeon, for example, to log into a system, select an order set, and fill out the details of that and sign off is still not quite as efficient as using a preprinted order sheet. And this is where we have to go back to the orthopedic surgery group, for example, and say, you know, it's not just your upfront efficiency that you're improving here, but your patient care turnaround time for medications, x-rays, respiratory therapy. So it's a global efficiency. Yeah, so, it, so we're talking about back-end efficiency, and that message is one that uh, is a difficult one to get across, but it's a, an important one to get across to uh, physicians throughout your organization when you implement the electronic health record. One other thing I would mention is physicians in the past um, spent a lot of time receiving pages, and those pages would go off, and uh, you'd look at your pager, and it would say 64259, and you weren't sure who was actually calling you. By the time you called back, uh, that person was no longer there. Oftentimes, this was the pharmacist calling you to clarify an order. In our own institution, 60 to 80 times per day in 1999 and 2000, a pharmacist was calling a physician to clarify an order. Those pages have dramatically decreased. Now, for a physician in our hospital today whose pager is not going off because of those uh, clarification calls from the nurse or the pharmacist, uh, because they're receiving a complete legible order now, the physician doesn't necessarily recognize that. So it's important when you're um, touting the benefits of the electronic health record for your constituents that you say to them, uh, that you tell them about the advantages that they have now that they did not have previously because physicians are usually pretty good at recognizing new annoyances, but they're not very good about recognizing the absence of old things that used to annoy <laughs> That's them. That's a really important point. It really is because you're changing multiple things when you're changing the way physicians are entering orders. Um, one other area I wanted to ask you about is this whole important area when you develop an electronic health record of alerts and reminders, which I know can be important, but is often very complex to implement properly. And I was wondering if you could uh, talk about that. Well, Richard, this is a very topical area and an important one as well. The uh, systems that are offered by the vendors today are very appealing in one very important way, and that is there are a lot of alerts and reminders that are offered with the base systems. So, for example, drug-allergy uh, interaction alerts, drug-drug interaction alerts, uh, therapeutic duplicate alerts, therapeutic, or I'm sorry, generic duplicate alerts, um, and then any of the clinical decision support that you build into the system, such as dose range checking alerts and so forth. These alerts are 
uh, numerous and oftentimes overwhelming. And the temptation initially is to turn it all on because you're going to try to reduce errors in your hospital there. But that's a mistake. Uh, that's actually a mistake that we learned the hard way um, by finding out when we turned all the alerts on offered by the system, the physicians universally said that I am getting too many alerts. We did a formal query on this and found that 73% of the alerts that we gave them were unhelpful to them and developed an alerts task force to try to reduce the number of alerts uh, to a palatable level there. To give you an example in the critical care setting, you may have a patient who is on a morphine infusion who is unsedated and you decide to give a, an additional bolus of, say, fentanyl. Mm -hmm. um, and when you go to enter that order for fentanyl, you get an alert that says therapeutic duplicate there. Now, for the practicing intensivist, that's an annoyance that you would rather not see. What that results in is physicians starting to ignore these alerts, and separating out the alerts that are important from those that are not important becomes quite difficult. And that's why, again, having someone like yourself involved in the implementation of these electronic order systems is so absolutely critical. I think it's critical that you think about that up front, but I also think it's critical that you monitor the type of decision support uh, interruptions into the physician's and nurse's workflow so that you can appropriately address them and uh, modify them accordingly. Why don't we conclude the interview by having you share with us your thoughts on the future of the electronic health record and uh, some of your uh, ideas and potential research areas for the future? Sure. Well, to summarize some of the things that I think you can expect uh, both now and in the future from the electronic health record, I would leave you with the following points. I think, first of all, that implementing a successful electronic health record is a real possibility in this day and age. Uh, many hospitals have done that, and I think it's possible for an institution that is committed and wants to engage in this. It's not an easy proposition, and I think it needs to be uh, significant, if not the number one priority for the institution. The immediate safety uh, and patient care efficiency gains that you see with implementation are real and can be experienced in, uh, in just about any institution that heads in this direction. The one caution I would have is that there are unanticipated events that are out there and they're lurking. You need to think about them in advance and plan for them and be on your toes to recognize them when they occur. And you have to have a plan in place to correct problems as they arise. The platform, uh, the electronic health record platform really establishes a very robust infrastructure to allow physicians, nurses, and management to understand the care that they're delivering in a way that they've never been able to understand it before. It enhances smart decision support making by clinicians. It allows you to understand where your variance is occurring and, and implement systems to reduce that variance, and it allows you to improve your regulatory compliance. But I think that nationally and even regionally, we have some significant hurdles that we are going to need to overcome as we move, port, uh, move forward in implementing the electronic health record nationally. And those include financial. These systems are not inexpensive. They require a large financial commitment of an institution, uh, not just to implement the system, but also to uh, maintain the system, sustain uh, enhancements over, over the period of time. Uh, as you use the electronic health record to not just deliver care, but improve your health care delivery. Culture change. I think that clinicians need to find these systems compelling to use in facilitating improved patient care, but also in maintaining or improving their own practice deficiencies. 
And then technology, the vendors and uh, the government and users need to constantly and continuously work on interoperability, common vocabulary, and so that the healthcare information can be safely communicated across systems both within and between institutions. We've been speaking today with Dr. Brian Jacobs. He is a pediatric intensivist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and he is a professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you, Richard. This concludes our podcast for Tuesday, January 10th, 2006. The Society's Critical Care Congress offers the opportunity to hear from critical care experts on a variety of cutting-edge topics. The Society's new conference, Excellence in Quality and Safety in Critical Care, in Baltimore, Maryland, USA, September 21st through 23rd, 2006, will bring together leading experts to examine patient safety, adverse medical events, and preventable medical errors, as well as identify everyday solutions to incorporate into practice. Using evidence-based studies and proven guidelines, participants will learn how to create a more efficient and safer ICU. In addition, pre-courses in coding and billing practices or medical emergency and rapid response teams will be offered. Register today by calling 1-847-827-6888 or visiting www.sccm.org.